The title of this evening's talk is The Pure and Beautiful Mind, The Benefits of Concentration, Metta, and Insight. And beginning uh, with a quote from William Butler Yeats, his poem called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our quiet. With this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and uh, beautiful states or factors of mind. The Pali word for this is cetasikas. These factors of mind that are associated with the development and the fruits of concentration, and also with the development and the fruits of metta and of vipassana, or mindfulness-based insight practice. All of which include a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness. Mindfulness called the Buddha, or the Buddha called mindfulness, the chief Because this quality or this factor of mind needs to accompany us all through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise uh, teachings um, and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in what is the Abhidhamma Pitaka or the Abhidhamma Basket. So I'd like to do just a brief exploration of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, the very uh, extensive teachings from the Buddha, the very authoritative record, we could say, of the Buddha's teachings. And the first basket, or sometimes it's called a collection, is the Buddha, is the Book of Discipline. It contains all of the rules uh, of conduct for the monks and the nuns um, and all of the guidelines regarding governing and living in community. And in this case, uh, the monastic community or the monastic sangha. Though many uh, of these guidelines can also be applied to living uh, a lay life as a Buddhist, in a Buddhist community, uh, a family, um, with a partner, uh, and in a lay Buddhist community such as IMS. Um, And Winnie did speak uh, quite a bit last night about uh, these guidelines, a lot of what is in this particular basket or collection. The second collection, or basket, brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas, sutta being a Pali word, sutra being the Sanskrit word, that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection, or basket, um, is the Abhidhamma. And this basket has quite a distinctly different a character or quality uh, than the other two do. Whereas it's not a record of 
discourses and discussions occurring in real-life settings, which both of the other two baskets are very much rooted in. But rather, the uh, Abhidhamma is a very clear, very detailed um, and refined disclosure of the mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective and combines it into quite a unique and actually quite a remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential, meaning that it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important um, in that it can be helpful and often inspiring uh, at some point along the way of our practice to actually hear in at least some detail uh, about some of the more refined experiential uh, processes that take place in practice. To understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my practice, uh, I found this information really quite interesting uh, in and of itself, uh, as well as the fact that this um, information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears, maybe, that show up uh, and other various aversive reactions uh, along with various practice experiences, along with the made-up and Uh, sometimes fanciful stories and and analyses, uh, as well as the misperceptions and misconceptions, misunderstandings, and the attachments, the clinging, that can come up in practice in relationship to what might be unusual or unfamiliar experiences. Or even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. One of my Burmese teachers, uh, who's no longer alive, Saida Upandita, called these uh, experiences the Dhamma delights of our practice. Although they're not always totally delightful. (laughs) (coughs) The Abhidhamma speaks about 38 wholesome mental factors, 38 wholesome mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful, that are associated with the development uh, phase of concentration and also with the um, manifestation of uh, a deep absorption in concentration further along the way, uh, called jhana, and uh, with many of these states also occurring to varying degrees um, Uh, with the development and the manifestation of metta and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and as insight unfold and blossom. A number of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universally developed and they're universally developing through our practice. Right? now in this retreat as you're practicing. Six of them are considered and are wholesome only if they're accompanied by a wholesome consciousness. And all this might sound kind of complicated at this point, but it will become clearer as we begin to explore these various uh, mental factors. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors. They're part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration, particularly uh, a pure concentration practice, which is, some of you are really diving into really practicing concentration pretty purely. And also they're involved with the focus of attention involved with metta practice with the first uh, two factors also being uh, necessary and active components throughout our insight practice, our vipassana practice. 
the last three of these first five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific stages of the development and manifestation of concentration uh, and a deep concentration, absorption, and also in relationship to metta to varying degrees. They're also active during uh, particular aspects of vipassana practice. So they really are aspects of all of our practices, the practices that um, Winnie and I have been exploring with you uh, during this retreat. So these first five wholesome factors of mind are aspects of practice that each and all of you are experiencing to varying degrees right here and now in this retreat. So I'd first uh, just like to um, list these first five wholesome mental factors that are associated with the development of concentration and metta and insight practice. The first of these is the uh, the Pali word is vitaka, translates as initial application. The second, the Pali word is vichara, it uh, translates as sustained application. Only when these two factors of mind are accompanied by uh, a healthy, wholesome mind consciousness are these two particular mental factors, wholesome factors of mind. So they're called occasionals. They occasionally happen. (laughs) And probably more and more uh, are happening uh, as you're practicing this week. Unwholesome application and sustaining this application of the mind on something unwholesome is certainly possible as uh, I'm sure uh, all of us know from our own experience. Most likely, each of us have at times applied and sustained our attention on various unwholesome and maybe even harmful or hurtful or totally unnecessary or frivolous or unskillful and insensitive activities. We've used vitaka and vichara in unwholesome ways. So those are the first two. The second, or the third, is uh, the Pali word is piti, and it's usually uh, uh, translated as joy uh, and zest. The fourth is sukha in Pali, and it's usually translated as a kind of sweet happiness. And the fifth is ikagata in Pali, and it's translated as one-pointedness. So I'd like to explore each of these uh, a little bit more in depth. The first wholesome factor, vitaka, translated as initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into, onto and into the object. And in our case here, for most of us, for example, um, the sensations of the breath at the anapana spot. Or maybe to a particular metaphrase, uh, and maybe the internal visual image of the metta object, be it a dear friend or benefactor, a difficult person. Vitaka's function is to, as it's called in the Abhidhamma, strike at the object. Kind of a very graphic description of what it does. Strike at the object. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. And the expression that's often used, it's kind of like training a puppy. You know, you've got to train it to do what you want it to do, to get in this case, the breath, this puppy mind of ours. 
Vitaka has the special task and fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, sleepiness, lethargy. Vitaka is very closely associated, <clears throat> closely connected with intention, right intention, wholesome intention, as it's uh, spoken about in the Noble Eightfold Path. We have a wholesome intention to train our puppy mind to the breath. The second wholesome factor of mind, vichara in Pali, the sustained application. Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or as it's spoken about in the Abhidhamma, uh, stroking uh, the object. So it's interesting, stroking is soft, pressure is kind of hard. So it, it comes about in different ways, at different times. In the sense of staying with it, is what it basically means. We're staying with the object. And seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind, we could say, on the object. So in our case here, it's the breath sensation at the Anapana spot for most of you. Maybe it's the in and out sensations uh, somewhere else in the body, certainly, or maybe for some of you, uh, a metaphrase and the image of the metta object. Vichara temporarily inhibits the hindrance of doubt and to varying degrees uh, as we're developing our practice. In very deep states of concentration, it actually uh, temporarily, totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt. And it weakens this hindrance overall. Weakens it, makes it less potent overall throughout one's ongoing concentration and metta, uh, or maybe also the insight practice. There are some wonderful metaphors or similes, as they're called in the commentaries of the Abhidhamma, uh, highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. I'd like to just share two of them. Vitaka is like a bird spreading out its wings to fly. So the initial application. And vichara is like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings. So this sustained application. The third uh, factor of mind, uh, piti in Pali, zest or joy. Piti is an occasional, as is the term. Why? Because only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it wholesome and beautiful. The mental characteristics of piti can actually be quite endearing uh, and can be explained as a delight, um, a very positive or pleasurable interest in the object. And its function is to refresh, refresh the mind and refresh the body. It pervades the mind and also the body uh, in its initial stages with a kind of, uh, some sensations of thrills, kind of thrills, sometimes described as rapture, um, though actually this word rapture doesn't quite cover all of its nuances. It often manifests as a mind and body quality of elation, of gladness, joy, even a kind of feeling of merriment, a kind of mirth, uh, exaltation maybe, exhilaration sometimes, and a sense of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five uh, grades of piti that are uh, very clearly distinguished that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and perking along in our practice. 
So I'd like to explore these with you briefly. And I'm sure that uh, some of these um, will be recognized by some of you as experiences that have occurred uh, in, in your practice or in the past or are maybe occurring in your practice uh, this week. To varying degrees. I mean, there's lots of degrees of this. So the first is called minor joy or minor zest. And it's able to raise the hairs on the body. So you might have experienced that. Just as I said it, all the hairs on my arm are kind of standing up. (laughs) Feels like it anyway. Uh, The second one is momentary joy, momentary zest. And that manifests as uh, often little tiny flashes of light, like lightning in the mind. Um and sometimes with color. So some of you may know of that. And then there's something called showering a joy or showering zest. And this experience is kind of a breaking over the whole body again and again of uh, sensation, joy, and uh, maybe some of the tingling and kind of like waves coming up onto the seashore. And it can be very subtle or it can be quite intense sometimes. The next one is called uplifting joy or uplifting zest. This can um, cause the body to feel as though it's kind of levitating. It may or may not actually be doing that, but there's, a <laughs> there's an uplift, very uplifted feeling. And I have heard that uh, uh, for some yogis this has actually occurred. A levitation. Um, a story from my a friend and co-teacher, Sayadaw Vivekananda, uh, uh, tells a story about a monk um, at a particular monastery in Burma um, doing sitting practice in his room. He stayed in his room and he practiced in his bed, sitting on his bed. And um, he would rise up and then fall over again and again and again well, how do we know this? Because he bragged about it, which is actually not what... He's not supposed to do that. But he did brag about it. And um, other monks wanted to, to see it, side of Vivekananda said. So he told them he, he told them to come to the window of his little uh, practice cottage, his kuti, uh, and look in the window at a certain time in the day, and they could watch the show. <laughs> which, in fact, uh, I heard they did. And he performed properly for them. Mm-hmm. The next kind of PT is called pervading joy or pervading zest. And it pervades or it floods the whole mind and body with a kind of refreshing, bright sense of elation. And in the Abhidhamma description, it's like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly PT that is experienced um, much more as a mind state than uh, uh, in the body, uh, it has the potential to uh, weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused, mindful, and absorbed attention uh, on the object, as happens with a real deep concentration, and sometimes also with metta practice, PT can temporarily completely inhibit ill will. Temporarily is an important word here, though it's temporary. At those points when that's happening, PT is only a mind state. It's really not showing up in the body hardly at all, or not at all. There's something that um, particularly uh, classical uh, vipassana teachers speak about called the corruptions of insight. And it has to do with this uh, description I've just given of all the different types of PT mostly and also some of the other things we're going to explore, sukha, which comes next. Um, corruptions of insight is when these things occur to whatever degree, very slightly or going to the other end quite extremely, um, and we're identified and attached with them, to them, identified with them and attached to them, uh, 
they're considered corruptions of insight because we're stuck there. When we're not attached and when we're not identified with whatever to whatever degree of these experiences are occurring, we're just knowing them, observing them, we feel them, we know that they're happening, but there's no attachment and no identification, then they are not corrupting insight. Then they're wholesome and beautiful states. So the fourth, happiness, or sukha in Pali, that's kind of sweet happiness. This is a state of mind that's wholesome and beautiful only if there's no identification and no attachment to it when it's occurring. So, again, it's called an occasional. It's not easy not to attach to stuff that's quite interesting and pleasant and identify with it. I like, I want, I need, please stay, don't go. You know, you really have to be very mindful to know when you're attached and when you're identified. So this occasional sukha, sweet happiness, This mental factor is a quite a pleasant, um, happy mental feeling that's uh, born out of mind contact with the object of attention, such as the breath. At the Anapana spot, maybe somewhere else in the body, uh, and also it uh, can show up uh, with our practice of metta. Metta phrases and uh, the object of metta that we're sending the Metaphrases too. Sukha is a very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. So it's explained as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very gratifying it can engender a, a, quite a deep sense of gratification. Consequently, it's really easy to get attached to. So mindfulness needs to remain really quite strong and clear. Sukha counters the, uh, and weakens actually, the uh, hindrance of restlessness and worry. Although piti and sukha are closely connected, they're not the same. So I'd like to read uh, just a, a little piece here from the commentary uh, uh, from the Abhidhamma, a description of piti. It's quite a metaphorical uh, description of piti and sukha. So piti first, sometimes called rapture. It's like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees another person on the path and asks, where's the water? And the other person said, soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, the traveler is glad, joyful and delighted. And then more glad and more joyful and more delighted when they see the leaves on the ground. And then people in wet clothes with wet hair and they hear the sounds of wildfowl. And then they see the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the lake. And then they see the clear transparent water and water lilies growing on the lake. And then this weary traveler is more and more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's piti. (laughs) Sukha. Ease, sweet happiness is like the traveler entering, entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. The commentary describes it like this. This being descends into the lake bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns themselves with lotus flowers, 
then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lays down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so gently and says, Oh, bless, oh, bless. (laughs) With the sense of ease and sweet happiness grown really strong, enjoying the taste of the object, as it says in the commentary. So piti, joy, rapture, and sukha, the sweet uh, bliss of happiness, they're closely connected, but they're not the same. And piti always gains prominence before sukha, and it provides the causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these five uh, wholesome mental factors is ikagata, one-pointedness. And this is a universal, this is a universal mental factor. And it's the primary component, it's the, really the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha. And you're all practicing it again and again and again and again. It's the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha, be it a sustained and potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of attention as we work with in vipassana practice, insight practice, and in metta practice. One-pointedness temporarily inhibits, uh, or weakens, we could say, uh, the sensual desire uh, overall. In a very deep, uh, deep concentration, uh, absorbed concentration, it completely, temporarily inhibits sensual desire for anything but what you're, you're in the midst of your practice with, which is ikagata itself and equanimity at that point. Interestingly enough, the development uh, and the eventual maturation of ikakata, of one-pointedness, also weakens our tendency towards blindly, habitually being caught over and over again in various aspects of sensual desire when there's uh, a maturing uh, capacity for momentary, a momentary focus of attention accompanied by a really strong mindfulness. And all of this is necessary. They're necessary conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. So practicing this in this retreat is helpful across the board for our practice. The function of ikagata, the function of one-pointedness, is that one's able to very closely uh, contemplate the object though it can't uh, perform this function by itself. It requires the joint cooperation, we could say, um, of the other four factors we've just uh, discussed a bit, um, uh, each of them performing uh, their own special function. Vitaka, applying the attention, uh, along with all of the other associated states. Uh, Vichara, sustaining the attention on the object, along with all of the other associated states. Uh, uh, piti, bringing a delight and interest uh, in, into the object, uh, in relationship to the object, and sukha, experiencing uh, a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So these are the first five wholesome factors of mind that are associated with <clears throat> the development uh, uh, of our concentration practice, the development of metta practice, and also the development of insight practice, mindfulness-based insight vipassana practice. So I'd like to go on now and look at uh, the other beneficial factors of mind, uh, considerably more briefly, 
that are associated with concentration and metta and vipassana practice. The next one, again, what certainly many of you are exploring in this retreat, is um, the Pali word is adimoka, which is decision or intention, as we've been uh, using that word, or resolve, making a resolve, intention, or decision. And this also is an occasional Because it's wholesome, uh, actually, only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. Adimoka literally translates, literally means the releasing of the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered uh, in translation as resolution or decision. It has the characteristics of conviction, And it helps to create and to support uh, clarity of purpose in relationship uh, to our uh, practice. Its function is to not kind of grope around. So that clarity of purpose. It manifests as decisiveness uh, regarding the object of of attention. Its nearest and its most uh, immediate cause is that it needs something to be be convinced about. So, for example, in our case here, uh, making a resolve or making an intention to give one's complete attention to the breath at the Anapanaspat or maybe in the belly as we do usually in Vipassana practice, um, or in Vipassana practice to give at times full attention to bodily sensations or to, to mental states, or in metta practice to give our full attention to the metta phrases and the object that we're directing our metta phrases to. Adimoka in the... Um, in the text is uh, compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. So the next one is energy. And the Pali word is virya. And it's an occasional as well. It's wholesome. It's a wholesome mind state only when it's associated with wholesome activity in practice. Virya is the state or the action of one who's vigorous. And its characteristic is exertion and supporting or mobilizing or marshalling as it's, it's called in the Abhidhamma. Marshalling our practice energy. Its function is to support the states that it is associated with, and it manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause uh, for this particular energy, this particular quality to manifest, is a sense of urgency, a sense of spiritual urgency. And it can also be uh, encouraged and stimulated by engaging in an experience that arouses energy. Something as simple as taking a very refreshing walk, maybe outside, or maybe doing 15 minutes of mindful yoga, or tai chi or qigong, or some other kind of mindful exercise. Or actually any wholesome activity that stirs and inspires us, uh, our internal energy, towards uh, vigorous action, and in this case, meaning towards energetic practice. The next wholesome factor of mind is wholesome desire. So you certainly may have heard that desire is the cause of suffering. Wholesome, there's such a thing as wholesome desire. And the Pali word is kanda. 
It means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action or, and or to achieve a result. And this kind of desire needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire. Unwholesome desire meaning that it stems from greed, it stems from lust, it stems from confusion and misunderstanding. Kanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. And it can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal, as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken about metaphorically in the Abhidhamma commentaries as the hand stretching for the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. And I think that's really a very beautiful expression and image because it's not about grabbing or grasping. It's the stretching forth of the mind's hand towards the object. So there's a, 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 a big list still, but we're not going to go, we're going to go through it pretty quickly now. Um, and many of the, as we go through it, you'll recognize many of the uh, qualities or uh, states of mind that we, that I'm going to mention, we've already looked at. Winnie's talked about them, I've talked about them, um, to some degree at least. Not all of them, but a number of them. So the, the first one is faith. We looked a little bit this morning at faith. Mindfulness, we've talked about a fair amount, is another one. Uh, the next two, uh, in Pali they're hiri and otapa. And uh, hiri dis, uh, translates as moral shame, and otapa translates as moral dread or fear of wrongdoing. Um, they're actually two considered to be two very beautiful mental factors. They're considered, and Muni did mention this last night, I don't know if she remember if she used the Pali words or not, but uh, they're absolutely necessary for the protection and the wholesome functioning of a family, communities, the world, and in relationship to every relationship that we engage in in our life. Next is and sometimes these are spoken of in the, in the negative. Non-greed, non-hatred are the next two. Then comes neutrality of mind, neutrality of heart. And this is very directly associated with equanimity. Neutrality of mind and heart. Tranquility of mind and heart. Tranquility being, uh, being extensive calmness. Then comes tranquility of consciousness. Lightness of mind and heart. Meaning a kind of brightness. Brightness of mind and heart. Lightness and brightness. The opposite of heaviness. The opposite of the sinking of the heart and the mind and consciousness. Which probably all of us have experienced at times. That kind of heavy sinking feeling in practice. Next is the malleability of the heart and mind, meaning non-rigidity of heart and mind, malleability. Very, very important quality for our practice. The malleability of consciousness. Next is the wieldiness of mind and heart. And what does this mean? The ability of the mind to go where it needs to go. The wieldiness. The wieldiness of consciousness. Proficiency of mind and heart, meaning the clarity and the quickness of the mind and the heart. Proficiency of consciousness. Honesty, uprightness of heart and mind. Honesty, uprightness of consciousness. And the next four are 
the Brahma Viharas or the divine abidings, which are both beautiful and wholesome. Metta, unconditional loving kindness. Karuna, boundless, unconditional compassion. Mudita, which is appreciative or empathetic joy in relationship to other people's joy and success and happiness. And the last of these is equanimity, upaka. All of this is, it's kind of amazing. I mean, it's this, all of this is happening and developing and growing in your practice this week. Anytime you practice, actually. If you practice uh, appropriately, we could say. So there are three more uh, beautiful mental factors that I'd like to just mention a little bit. They're called the abstinences in the Abhidhamma. There are three distinct um, mental factors that the Buddha uh, quite often spoke about that uh, come about through three different types or three different levels of abstinence. And they're really uh, very important for the development of concentration and insight. So the first is called natural abstinence. And it means... um, Uh, the abstinence from mental and uh, physical deeds that cause harm. Harm to oneself or harm in relationship to others. Abstinence when from these um, harmful deeds, um, actions or words, when an opportunity arises in our life to engage in them due to various conditions, maybe some particular circumstance uh, in your life at a particular time. Uh, Certain things arise in relationship to our age, our position in life, uh, maybe in relationship to our our kind of education we've had or the level of our education, lots of reasons. Um, One naturally, naturally abstains from... Uh, these particular uh, mental and physical deeds that come up for an opportunity to engage in, we abstain out of our innate, own innate wisdom and compassion. And we do that a lot, every day, in small ways and big ways. The next abstinence is to do with undertaking the precepts, the guidelines, that we began with at the beginning of this retreat and that Winnie looked at uh, quite a bit last night. The commitment to live one's life observing the precepts, certainly in this retreat setting and maybe, uh, as was mentioned, uh, beyond this, some people take them every morning as a guideline for their life. (coughs) So abstaining from harming life, all sentient beings, killing, harming, Uh, abstaining from harmful speech, abstaining from stealing, not taking what is not given, harmful, uh, abstaining from uh, harmful sexual activity, and abstaining from uh, intoxicants and drugs that cloud the mind. So this is the abstinence undertaking the precepts, when we undertake the precepts. Then the third one is called abstinence by eradication. And this comes about through the fruits of engaging in what we could call the supramundane path of the purification of the heart and the mind. It's this Buddha Dhamma path of awakening, this path of liberation. And what's interesting here is what is eradicated. What's eradicated, eventually, may it be so for every one of us, any disposition towards engaging in any deeds that cause harm. No, can you imagine? Not any inclination, not any 
disposition to engage in any actions or words or thoughts that cause harm. An amazing possibility, quite amazing. So the first two abstinences are mundane. They're considered mundane because they're really quite common, ordinary in a worldly sense. And while this last one is, <clears throat> the term is used, often used supramundane, <clears throat> meaning it's, they're not, it's not common in a worldly sense, but it's of a purified, a spiritually purified nature, purify, spiritually purified heart and mind. And just a, a tiny bit more about the second, the second abstinence um, regarding the uh, undertaking the precepts. And again, Winnie spoke about this uh, quite a bit last night, so I'm not going to say much. But uh, included in that is uh, uh, what's called right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Um, and it, it's part of the uh, process uh, that we begin to explore and investigate and understand uh, through our exploration, our investigation of our own life and what we're doing and how we relate uh, to what we're doing. And I think that's all I'm going to say because uh, Winnie talked about it really well last night, beautifully. These three abstinence kind of function uh, as a kind of sh- shrinking back, we could say, when we use the precepts as our guidelines, uh, shrinking back from harmful deeds. Um, and the closest and most pertinent uh, uh, causes uh, for this kind of shrinking back uh, are the really very special and very beautiful qualities of faith and um, the hiri otapa, the shame of engaging in harmful deeds and the fear of wrongdoing. And that really uh, is the food, we could say, for uh, a shrinking back from these kinds of harmful deeds. Um, also, as we uh, develop our practice, um, many people find that they're really inclining towards living at least a somewhat simpler life. Um, maybe having uh, not quite so many uh, wants and needs, or thinking that there's, I must have, I must have, I must have, maybe a little bit less of that, a simpler life. And that also informs our our. Uh, abstinences, we could say, the things that we, we uh, move away from doing, the harmful things. The last of this very long list um, of wholesome and beautiful mental factors, mental states, is the factor of understanding. It's the wisdom faculty. It's what we're moving towards through our practice all the time. It's really the essence of our path of practice, whether we're practicing concentration, whether we're practicing metta, and whether we're practicing insight. This is really a path of the heart, a path of the heart and the mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with a heart and follows it and then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to really clearly begin to recognize at least some of these 
um, experiential states in relationship to your own practice, experience, uh, uh, as concentration and mindfulness and metta uh, continue to develop and blossom, is that with the knowledge of what's occurring and why it's occurring, we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize, and to know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other aversive reactions and without misunderstandings, without misperceptions, but rather with what is classically called dispassion. And this is what allows the continuing development of our practice to just keep unfolding and keep blossoming. I'd like to share uh, just a a short uh, passage from the Buddha, uh, from the Samyutta Nikaya. And he's uh, speaking uh, to his uh, monks and nuns. And he said, Yogis, bhikkhus, mindfulness with breathing, anapanasati, that one has developed and makes much of, has great fruit and great benefit. Even I myself, this is the Buddha talking to his his students, even I myself, before awakening, when not yet enlightened, while still a bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be, lived in this dwelling, this way of life for the most part. When I lived mainly in this dwelling, the body was not stressed, the eyes were not strained, and my mind was released from the corruptions, the cankers, through non-attachment, released from the hindrances, unwholesome states, through non-attachment. For this reason, he says, should anyone wish, may my body not be stressed, may my eyes not be strained, may my mind be released from the asava, which is the Pali word, through non-attachment, then that person ought to attend carefully with her, his mind and heart to this mindfulness of breathing meditation. Said the Buddha. in their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these wholesome and beautiful states that we've explored to some degree this this evening, these qualities, these capacities, are really the wholesome and beautiful qualities and capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. So as we uh, come to the end of this evening's talk, I'd like to... um, offer you some vice, advice, not vice, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> offer you some advice <laughs> from a, a, a writer, Robert Persig. Robert Persig quite some time ago wrote a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Maybe some of you read that. Some of you are old enough to have read that. I certainly did read it. Um, And this is from Robert Persig's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He calls this part of a piece out of his book called Peace of Mind. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that's done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. I loved that book years ago. (laughs) And closing the talk with some words... um, from a Tibetan Buddhist master, Atisha, from the 11th century. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth 
is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.